Welcome to CTL Connections Short Bites, a series of interviews with senior engineering leaders. I'm your host, Peter Bell. The future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. At CTL Connection, we try to solve that by identifying, curating, and distributing the latest tools and techniques for more effectively building and managing an engineering team. Join our community at ctlconnection.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners. Code Climate is our global sponsor. Code Climate Velocity helps CTOs, VPEs, and directors at companies like Slack, Gusto, and Pizza Hut align initiatives with strategic priorities, accelerate software delivery, and drive continuous improvement. I'd also like to thank Amazon Web Services and Carrot, our sustaining partners. I'd also like to take a moment to introduce our Short Bytes partner, Cloud Zero. You're spending a ton of money on the cloud, so shouldn't you know exactly what you're spending it on? Cloud Zero will help you organize and understand your cloud spend better than anyone else out there. You'll get visibility without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. With Cloud Zero, you can optimize your unit economics, decentralize cost intelligence to engineering, and create a shared language between finance and technical teams. You'll be able to answer questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What is the cost impact of re-architecting this application? Join companies like Drift, Rapid7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started. Again, please visit cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started today. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Porter, the CTO at MongoDB. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. It is such a pleasure to be here, Peter. Thank you very much. So I've got to ask, you joined uh, MongoDB as, as a CTO there back in, what, July of 2020? Yeah, I did. It was a great time, right in the middle of the, the beginning phase of the pandemic. Such a strange time to join a company. <laughs> now, how was uh, what was the, the kind of scale of like, firstly, are you responsible for engineering, product and engineering? How how you set up there in terms of CPOs and CTOs and the like? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. So I have always believed that CTOs and CPOs should be peers. Um, I've seen organizations structured other ways that work, but I think that natural, you know, that tension between the two, good tension is great. So I have a peer, Sahir Azam, who runs product and all engineering reports to me. And then we Got have it. separate organizations, of course, for sales and HR and all those things. And when you joined like Ballpark, what was the kind of size of the engineering organization you inherited? Uh, we were running around 400 just engineering at that time. Now we're about two and a half times bigger than that, about a thousand. Whoa. I've so run larger four... orgs. I've run smaller orgs. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've grown two and a half times in the last two years. It's crazy. That's a lot of growth. Now, when you joined, as you said, it was early in the pandemic. What was the the uh, thinking around remote, distributed office culture in Mongo when you first got there? So when I first got here, of course, we were in that first phase of COVID. And that meant, of course, everyone was at home in different phases. And then as we developed, the company created this future of work initiative. And we, we came up with all these different things we did. We did pulse surveys once a month to see how people were feeling about various things, which was great. Because as the executive team, we had our view, but that getting that bottom up view once a month was really important. And over time, what we've pivoted to, at least in engineering, is you work where you want to work, when you want to work, how you want to work. Now, some teams have decided they actually want to be back in the office, and that's how they want to work. And some teams have decided to stay almost exclusively remote. 
And what's interesting to me is giving people those choices makes them actually feel more loyal to the company because, you know, we're treating them more like adults. We're saying you are responsible for getting the job done and you have to choose how to do that. The autonomy part of autonomy, mastery and purpose. Yes, we have Dan Pink to thank for that wonderful video in the great book. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and I've got to ask, how do you think about compensation as it relates to that? If I'm in New York City and I decide to move to S South Dakota and then I happen to move back a year later, does my, does my paycheck go down and up? Like, how do you think about that in a, a world where some teams do decide to work remotely within the U.S.? So we have an interesting point of view, which, which I agree with, which is we believe that your base salary should change slightly as you move between, you know, premium areas and other areas in terms of compensation. But from an equity point of view, which, you know, a lot of our engineers have equity, um, we really don't differentiate at all. And the reason we do it that way is because we think about your base salary as your housing, your food, your, your, your fundamental expenses. We think about your equity as your long-term five to 10-year value to the company. And so, you know, someone might move and they might get small adjustments, but nothing major. That's great, because I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, especially as, you know, more and more people are starting to work for coastal companies, even if they don't live on the coast themselves. Right. Now, what I do believe is that the world will create markets and these markets will be software developers in different parts of the world and designers in different parts of the world. And I do think, I mean, just to be very frank, I think we are on the very early edge of experimenting with how that's going to play out. And, and then maybe just to ask, you mentioned the other parts of the world. How do you think about hiring currently for your teams? Is it geographically specific? Somebody has to be within US or US and Canada or North America. Is it time zone limited or is it just if you've got a heartbeat and you're somewhere on the planet, if you're a good enough developer, we'll hire you? Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, part of, part of what we're going to talk about today is building teams. And I believe that teams can be built um, even remotely, by the way. I mean, there's lots of companies out there which are completely remote. That's fine. It's harder. And getting together fills the bucket of, of team building fills the bucket of collaboration, the bucket of trust is what I like to call it. Um, and, and so what I believe is that teams should be time zone aligned. So we have teams where some of the designers are in Dublin and some of the developers are in Barcelona. That's fine to me. What I try to avoid is a team where I might have some of the developers in Dublin and some in Sydney. And, and I just think that's hard because there is that human interaction, whether it's over Zoom or Slack or whatever it is, or email, whatever your company culture uses. Um, I do believe you have to overlap some significant number of hours of the day. So then what we do is we take efforts of our company and like we have our Wired Tiger storage engine development completely in Sydney. And that's okay because they're all in Sydney. They are a long set of time zones away from Dublin going one direction or New York going the other direction, but they're a self-contained unit. So to me, it's about hiring anywhere in the world. Um, we're happy to hire pretty much anywhere in the world, but to make sure that you and your team are close in time zones. Now at my level, and of course, at the level below me, we're expected to manage teams worldwide. But at the level farther down where individual daily, hourly interactions are happening, I really try to keep people geographically, i.e. time zone close, not geographically miles close.
That makes sense. Now, do you? How do you play with? Some people modify that and say the most important thing is overlapping working hours, and they're a little flex about geography. So, for example, if you've got a developer who generally loves to roll out of bed at noon and work till midnight, you let them do that as long as you've got your five plus hours of overlap on the team. Do you support that, or do you feel that that's not sustainable? And you know, once they have a family, it's like they're not going to be able to do that. Like, how do you think about allowing people to shift their working hours to get the time zone overlap? So I'm going to hark back to where, when, and how you want to work. And I believe that people have to take a fundamental responsibility for showing up to work. And this is no different than before the pandemic. You had to show up in the right clothes to, you know, appropriate for your company. You had to show up on time for meetings. It's just changed what that means. If someone wants to make that investment, like you said, that that rather strange time zone investment potentially we're going to ask questions. We're going to say, hey, why is this sustainable? How is it sustainable? But me personally, if they say it's sustainable, I'm going to say, let's give it a go. Now, at the end of the day, when our six-month performance cycle comes along, if it turns out that that is actually causing a performance problem, we're going to have a hard conversation. But I want the empowerment and the responsibility of being a great person, producing great results to rest with the individual at every level of the company. That makes a lot of sense. So, And it's hard f- because a lot mm. of people used to think they had control over this stuff. The reality is they didn't have control <laughs> over it anyway. Knowing that someone was sitting in their desk was this phantom of control. What you need to have control over is, is the team getting along? Is the team have a clear roadmap? Are people you know, clear on how they relate to each other and how they depend on each other? As long as that's happening, a lot of the other stuff is and was noise. That is, that's great. When you joined Mongo as CTO, what were some of your like first observations? What were some of the first things you noticed about the team and the culture? So I joined MongoDB as a board member first, and that was, that was quite a privilege. And I was on the board for a while. And then I decided, because I got so entranced with the culture of the company and with the leaders of the company, I actually decided to step off the board and so what I noticed is a combination of those two roles. And the first, the first thing I noticed was this empowered culture, which you've heard a lot. The second thing I, I noticed as a board member was MongoDB is fundamentally different. And I'm, we're not going to talk about technology today, but the thing that got me to join MongoDB was it is fundamentally a distributed systems platform that scales and is available rather than the prior systems I'd worked with, which are a database which does transactions great, but frankly, really struggles with scalability and availability. So that was the first thing. The second thing I noticed is just how incredibly focused MongoDB was on investment. I think we've put in almost a billion dollars now into R&D, which is a lot of money, in order to build this mission-critical system. And, you know, as an example, bringing fully acid transactions was three years and $40 million of investment for that one feature to bring acid transactions. Wow. So I did that. And then the final part of my answer to your question, which is kind of fun, is the company had grown up with this startup, energetic, developer, whatever culture, which is great. Nothing. I mean, that's what got the company going and still drives the company today. But we were running mission-critical banks. We were running currency exchanges. We're running all these things. So what I did is I really brought in 30 years of mission-critical systems expertise, and I gave the team the air cover they needed to talk about 
security, durability, availability, operability, you know, all the things that are so important today. And two years later, I can say, and this just happened yesterday. In fact, I got a lot of comments on it because we had a big planning meeting. People said, Mark, you coming in and giving us the air cover to build the software that is both has the features we need and has all those non-functional requirements has been just this amazing transformation. And I got to tell you, I'm kind of proud of that. So that's why I'm, I'm saying it. You mean you didn't just say, we should move fast and break things? Uh, don't get me started. <laughs> we'll only on lose that. some of the data. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on that. No, MongoDB is a mission critical system for mission critical customers. And wow, it has taken 10 years to get it to the level of mission criticality that we've had for the last four or five years. And it's, it's great now. So then the other thing I did is I looked at areas of the surface area. And I think all CTOs and directors have to be very, very careful to think about the surface area because it's so easy to get into this quarter's planning and next quarter's planning. And what I realized is we could expand our surface area in two major ways. Number one, we could make it easier to expand off relational databases into MongoDB, into modern distributed systems. And so I championed Relational Migrator, which we released a couple of weeks ago. And then also I determined that databases needed to be more secure. There are so many people who aren't moving to the cloud or who are scared to move to the cloud or who are doing cloud deployments carefully, over carefully because of security. So we released queryable encryption. Now I'm not talking about technology today and you guys can all go look at that. But the thing I am gonna talk about is as a CTO, you need to spread your time very carefully between the features you are developing, the quality of those features and brand new crazy things. And make sure that you spend a significant amount of time, 10, 20% on brand new crazy things. Now, where do the brand new crazy things typically come from at MongoDB? Is this very much customer driven where it's coming through the sales org? Is it internal blue sky thinking? Do you have a small team that's just thinking about architecture and capabilities? How do you build the backlog for the crazy? So that's fun. So obviously customers want to talk about, hey, is it stable? Is it available? Can I have that new screen on the Atlas GUI, et cetera? And, and a lot of customers don't actually help you with that innovation. They're just so focused on their mission critical needs. But then if you listen between the lines and you hear them say, well, I'm not moving to the cloud because, you know, I just, we just don't trust the, the encryption technologies as an example. Now, the encryption technologies on the cloud are excellent, but you could hear those things and they will very rarely ideate the cool new things. But I try to talk to one CTO a day on average. And I, I really do. Sometimes I, I talk in batches of four or five. But really, I talk to one CTO a day on average or a senior engineering leader. And if you listen, you keep hearing, wow, people aren't talking about that. Or people are talking about how they can't do X or Y or Z. And then we create the ideas. One example of that was people kept talking about just how much trouble they were having moving between MongoDB databases. They're already MongoDB customers. No one asked us to create a cluster to cluster sync utility, but we heard it between the lines. And you got to keep that ear open. So, so I've got to ask, I mean, you, you, I feel like you actually almost like dropped a bomb there because I know a lot of CTOs and very few of them are speaking to one customer or prospect CTO a day. So when was it that you first started doing that in your career? And how do you prioritize that with all the other things you have to do as a CTO of a large engineering organization? So what's really interesting is I talked to, to probably two CTOs a week or two senior engineering leaders a week when I was at AWS, because RDS was this massive fleet. I ran relational database service. 
And it was stunning how many things I would learn. Now, with availability, you have to listen to the pain because availability is all about the pain. You were down for 59 seconds on Friday while it was raining and I couldn't dispatch cars, you know, things like that, right? right. And, and then I came to MongoDB and people are writing all these new apps and I really amped it up because what I determined was that people were writing modern apps and addressing new areas of surface area for their company. And frankly, I determined I needed to learn more. So I just kept doing this. And we did these things where we'd have 10 or 15 CTOs in a room for three hours. So, you know, that helps with the one a day, right? <laughs> and I, I would get that. And we would have keep having them come up with ideas that they talk to each other about. And that was the magic. And, and we still do those about once a month. We do those sessions. So it, it's been pretty awesome. And so, you know, I do believe in customer backwards. I also believe that we as technologists, I read probably two research papers a week, which is kind of hard. And those often fill my bucket of innovation where I have this group of people, we, we call it our, our distinguished engineer team, and we just float crazy ideas past each other all the time. And I would highly advise to anyone who's listening, demand a close-knit group of people who feel safe with each other, saying crazy stuff to each other. And also be aware that if you as senior people say crazy things too often, you scare people farther out or down in the organization. So you really have to balance that, that close-knit group of people who are safe with each other and not have the rest of the organization feel thrashed because they will feel thrashed. Like if I had brought up my queryable encryption idea in an all hands to a thousand people, people would have been like, what is this crazy thing Mark's talking about? That stayed with a group of like six people for about a year before we actually did it. Wow. Now, when you think about what were some of the biggest, it seems like one of the big cultural changes was this move from, you know, a, a very strong startup innovation mentality to realizing that you are, hosting mission-critical workloads for very large organizations. In practice, how did you actually make a cultural shift for what was, you know, from 400 to 1,000 engineers? How did you actually get that to the point where they started repeating it back to you? Well, I once read an HBR article about managing change, and there was a CTO in there who said something, which CEO in there, who actually said something which has stuck with me for probably 25 years. And this CEO said, I know that I'm halfway done with the change initiative when vomit literally rises in my throat <laughs> talking about it. And that's how I know that I'm halfway done. And so what I've learned over the years is you say it, you say it, you say it. Now, many people in the organization have a new thing every quarter. And they think, not in my organization, but in organizations in general, and they think they're moving fast. They think they're being innovative? Well, what they teach the organization, and this is going to come across pretty controversial, is that if they just wait 12 weeks, it'll go away. <laughs> and that is bad. So when you think about Jack Welch and you think about people who run Amazon and you know Andy Jassy, they've said the same thing. You can go back to things Jeff Bezos has said 20 years ago. He still says them <laughs> it, it, you know, in his thing. So the way I did it was I just kept saying, you need to choose what the right level of quality, speed, features, NFRs, operability is for your software. And they said, well, well are you going to demand anything? I said, no, I'm going to demand that you exercise judgment. Because my team who's writing the storage engine 
had better exercise different judgment than my team who's writing my charts product. <laughs> Those are two totally different things. And so I refuse, and this is another piece of advice I'll give to people. I refuse to set precedents except for one precedent, use judgment. So many people want me to type out rules or type out a one pager with things. My tenants are things like think deeply, look deeply, write a document that justifies your opinion. And people find that more cognitively difficult, but that's where the real value is. And so people will come to me all the time and saying, what's your rule on this? And I say, the rule is that you think deeply. And they're like, darn it. <laughs> that is amazing. It reminds me, I went to like one of these kind of magnet high schools in the UK and it was the same thing that the headmaster said, look, uh, we don't have rules. Uh, because if we had rules, the kids would find some way to get around it. There'd be some kind of loophole. So we simply say, do the right thing and give them a hard time if they don't. And or then, God you know, forbid, they'd follow the rules perfectly and you'd have no innovation. That too. That that would probably not be. A, you know what? That might be okay for a school. It would not be great for an engineering org. <laughs> so I went to Caltech and all of our tests were open book tests. Some of them were open library tests. And one of them was a one-week open human test, which meant you could ask anyone you met in the hallway, <laughs> I'm thinking about this problem. Do you have any advice? Now, clearly they couldn't ask to cheat on the test. Right. And the reason Caltech did that was because they believe that the world is open book. When you're trying to solve an engineering problem, you could talk to anyone you want to. <laughs> you can research anything you want. And this was before the internet. Remember, I went to college before the internet. And they believed that, the, and they used this phrase, your job will be open book. So why don't we teach you open book? I love that. That is perfect. So I feel like there are two elements when you're trying to make a cultural change. One is you obviously want to impact the humans who are already within your org. Uh, but another approach to it is reconsidering how you engage with hiring, the values you, you optimize for. Were there any things that you did to impact the way either you or your reports thought about hiring and selecting the best engineers as you started to bring in that focus on reliability as well as, as feature delivery? So frankly, I was, I came to MongoDB with a very, very defined way of hiring. And as I listened to people my first six months, and by the way, there's a piece of advice for you. Listen, listen, listen. People actually are going to value you on becoming a member of the team long before they're going to value you on what you get done 30, 60, or 90 days in. And if you screw up becoming a member of the team as a CTO or someone brought in at a high level of authority, you're probably on your way out within a year. And so getting to that, what I did was I listened. And I found out that MongoDB's hiring was different than anything I'd ever learned. We listen for cultural values so strongly. We, of course, look at tech capabilities and can you design an algorithm and things like that. But if we find someone is not a cultural fit or we find someone through their prior employer under the bus or we find someone said something different in two interviews where they feel like they were positioning, that's it. They're cut. They're out, of the, they're out of the thing. And what that means is that because we have such a bottoms-up organization where trust is so important, we try to only have people join the organization who are going to be part of that trust circle. Now, we sometimes mess up because an interview is being on a stage and some people know how to be on a stage and then they get to work and <laughs> now they think they're backstage and different behaviors come out and we exit them 
quickly. We, we work on them. We set like a 20, 30 day deadline and we say, no, you need to become a member of this team. And if not, I think it's best for both of us if you go find another position. And that has actually worked out really well. That's great. So another question I have then is, as a CTO, you, you're almost balancing these two responsibilities. On the one hand, you are a member of the C-level executive team and responsible for thinking about business strategy, positioning, and helping the business to succeed. And on the other, you're supporting giving air cover to and otherwise helping your engineering org to align and, and to succeed and thrive and grow. How did you balance? I suppose it must have been a little different because you already had some deep connections being on the board. But how did you balance your time between connecting cross-functionally with other senior leaders and supporting and engaging with your VPs and, and the rest of the engineering org when you first came on? So this is an area where I think a lot of people stumble in their career. They come up and the first thing they touch is their keyboard and they control their keyboard and then they control their feature and then they control their product and then they control their team. And eventually they might control an org or whatever. What I would ask people to do, and I do ask people to do this regularly, is listen to yourself using the words us and them and listen to others and how they use the words us and them. And I'm going to say your job as an executive is to put the company first. And that means your us is the people above you and beside you. Now, then you integrate that and you make your us also the people below you. But you have to work every day. I call it the management sandwich. If the people above you or beside you believe something different than the people below you or beside you, you need to put down all tools and work on nothing else except resolving that because that's actually your job. Your job as a senior leader is having everyone in sync so we can all come to work every day and get our jobs done. And what happens is people will have this us versus them, either us being my team and them being the exec staff or us being the engineering and them being sales. Anytime I hear people use the word them, I say, let's stop. Why did you use the word them? And I just got to tell you, I have seen more executives walked out of companies with a root cause of an us versus them dichotomy than almost any other reason. And so one of the, the common us versus thems can be the product and engineering orgs, right? There's one group that's nominally the the supporting the customers and getting the features you want, and another group trying to figure out how to ship stuff that is still resilient, reliable, and all the rest. How... Do you both engage with the CPO at a high level? But then how do you encourage engagement in cross-functional teams to make sure that the engineers and the product teams aren't working across purposes? Okay, so first off, I love how you said the CPO, CTO, and then people down below. I am allergic to what I call pyramid decisions. Anytime that decisions need to go up to the common place in the organization, that's a failure. Now, that would be the CEO at this point, and I think right. Dave would have very little patience <laughs> for things coming to him. But even Sahir and I, we have resistance. We ask people regularly, why is this coming to us? Because yes, we want to help you with your decision, but we also want to figure out where the different layers. And I call that the zipper. And so what I ask people to do is look at the zipper of the org. I'm paired with my CPO. My VPs are paired with product VPs. Engineering leaders need to be paired with their product leaders, right? And so I always look at the zipper. Now, to get to your actual question of how that goes back and forth, sometimes there are disagreements. There's no doubt about it. So one thing I did 
And I did this at AWS with Charlie Bell, who was such a wonderful leader. I loved working with Charlie. I've worked with Charlie for since 1988. And we created a customer commitment spreadsheet because often people will commit things to customers way out in the field. And then it gets to support and then it gets to product. And then finally engineering says, hey, by the way, we're not adding that feature. And the world blows up because, well, that was committed for a $3 million deal. So what we did was we implemented a customer commitment spreadsheet. And in order to have something beyond that spreadsheet, the CRO, the CPO, and the CTO must put our checks in the commitment. So that's thing one, because that causes tension and toxicity in a company. And I hope this is down in the weeds advice for people, which is literally create that spreadsheet. And what happens when you first create that spreadsheet is for the next six months, people say, I have a road to add to the spreadsheet of something that's already committed. <laughs> and they keep coming out of the woodwork. So the next thing I do is I, I call it facing the whiteboard. I ask my engineering leaders and my product leaders whenever they're upset with each other, which happens. And obviously, they're not my product leaders, but our product leaders. And write down why they think they're right on a whiteboard without talking. Obviously, this is harder with Zoom. And then write down below the other person's thing why you think that person is completely wrong. And what you find is after this 10-minute exercise, you actually find you're almost completely aligned because it turns out you were both thinking about the customer just in different ways. So that's one way to do it. So that's the second piece of advice is this no words exercise where you write why you're right and then you write why the other person's wrong. And you can do that in a GDoc. The next thing and the final thing I do is I ask people to think about security, durability, scalability, operability, availability as features. Because I'm telling you right now, customers think of them as features. The problem is customers won't bring them up. Customers just assume all those things exist. And so they'll talk to you about the new index type they want, or they'll talk to you about the new screen they want, or the new analytics they want. They assume the six NFRs are there. And so what I've done over the years is I've gotten my product team to actually write documents about availability as a feature in the next release, about security as a feature in the next release, about operability as a feature. And I got to tell you, it's been kind of magical. I did it at AWS. I did it at Grab. And I did it at MongoDB. And it's really been pretty magical. Mark, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and your experiences. This has been great. Thank you so much for the time. And for any of you who are listening, I'm available on LinkedIn at Mark Loves Tech. I have a website, marklovestech.com. I'm available on Twitter at Mark Loves Tech. Um, I think you can tell I love tech. And the other thing I love is talking to people and learning. Everything you've heard today is not wisdom. It's pain and mistakes turned into advice. So I'd love to talk to you about your pain and mistakes. And if you don't like MongoDB or AWS or Grab or anything I've done in my past, come talk to me about my mistakes. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Mark. Have a great day. Bye now.